Before reading emotions, you'd probably have to have at least 100 people looking at people's facial expressions and trying to match that to an emoji or an emotional kind of thing. Welcome back to the Genuine X podcast. I'm Tom, one of the Genuine X team. In this week's episode, we talk to Dr. James Morgan from the University of Westminster. Dr. Morgan has been looking at how we can use emotional triggers to develop and enhance live events. Using technology such as facial recognition, we are now able to read emotions in real time, allowing us to hack people's emotions through changing their environments. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Genuine X podcast. And with me, we have Dr. James Morgan. Hello, James. Hi, Tom. How are you today? Uh, I'm very good after my avocado bagel. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> James, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I've been in events probably for 30-something years. Um, I did my first event was a fashion show I worked on. I wasn't designing it, but... Uh, and, yeah... Um, I now teach events in the School of Architecture. It's more event design and technology. Uh, it's not a business course. It's very much more a uh, ex live experience design-based course. And, um, yeah, I do that. And then I support uh, technology startups through the Event Tech Lab. It's a non-for-profit organization that I've been running for five years. And between that and my teaching commitments, uh, I'm pretty busy. Mm. And you're doing some quite interesting work at the moment uh, surrounding emotional triggers in physical spaces, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, one of our responsibilities at the university is uh, pure research and I have just completed one research project and that was on the nature of creativity in the events industry and working on a methodology of how we manage creative environments and uh, that finished last year uh, and then I just recently started this uh, new project on uh, engagement and emotional design in events. How's that going? Well, it's it's going. It's uh, obviously interrupted by teaching and uh, marking and things like that. But um, no, it's 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 something that um, I'm really enjoying at the moment. And then I, um, when you were talking earlier, you uh, kind of mentioned three kind of pillars of emotional response. Would that be? Right, the cognitive it wasn't the emotional. That's engagement theory, which comes from education. Right. So, um, the events industry is quite a new academic field. Um, so, what we do is we look at theory that's been established by other disciplines over a much longer period of time, and we look at those through the lens of the live experience industry and how we can actually adapt that theory, how we can refine that theory to be used for our industry, or how that theory can actually inspire us to create new theories that are more relevant to the live experience uh, design uh, piece that we are talking about today. So, for example, the engagement theory is very much about how to engage people in a classroom. But then you and I both know that if we're doing a conference, it could be a sales kickoff, it could be an educational conference. Um, there is always that idea that we have to engage the audience for them to change their behaviour and take away positive memories, right? Absolutely. And I, th I think in our in our industry of experience, experiential, one of the 
always shifting things is how we measure a KPI for experience, right? And is that emotionally done? And, you know, how do these things translate into sale or to brand recognition or to brand perception? So it's always quite interesting to talk to someone who's got a sort of read on how emotions can affect those. Well, of course. So with technology now, we are much closer to being able to create KPIs around that because before reading emotions, if you had a room of 200 people in a conference or you had 200 people at the uh, start of a brand launch or activation for a trainer, you'd probably have to have at least 100 people looking at people's facial expressions and trying to match that to an emoji or an emotional kind of thing. But now we have facial recognition technology and uh, there are a couple of companies including Zenus in uh, Houston and Exposure Analytics based up north uh, near Leeds, I think they are, um, that are using um, eight basic emotions. Uh, five of them are negative, three of them are positive, and they're using that emotional measurement uh, to create KPIs for different types of events in real time. So you could have a keynote guy on stage and all of a sudden the producer will come into his headphone or into his little ear mic and say, tell a joke because you're losing the audience because they can tell from the facial recognition that this is not working. Or in a retail environment, for example, a lady walks up to a dress with a big smile on her face, facially recognition joy, looks at the price tag, facial recognition disappointment. Next thing is somebody from the sales desk has rushed up to her and says, did you know today we got a 20% discount on that garment? Mm. So on that, on that point... Because um, it's interesting because we work a lot with facial recognition technology as well. And I'm kind of interested in your academic point of view because um, I would I would imagine that you look at this with a lot more rigor. And the problem with facial recognition is it requires quite an extreme face. And the reality is, certainly in the UK, people don't walk up to a dress and do anything on their face whether that be sadness or joy you don't express yourself so there is a how trustworthy is the technology how 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 useful is it because i can imagine if, if people are watching a band then there are much more they're kind of a much a more a higher emotional level and you're going to get much more expressions on their face but from a retail environment people don't really do very much expressively and we're not yet at the point where we can start putting EEGs on people's heads as they walk into shops so I'm just kind of wondering from an academic point of view because we've never spoken to academics about this. Yeah so just on that point I think what's important is the setting so for example if you if you want to do facial recognition in a concert where the lighting's quite low you obviously the lighting is going to make a huge difference to what the camera picks up. Mm. Because most cameras, we would imagine, we're just using a guy on a camera or we're using an iPad camera to look at facial recognition. But then we can go one step further from that. And if we look at technology like Rowcam Roll, which is an AI um, uh, powered um, camera system that can actually focus in on uh, uh, faces that we, we could use that same type of technology in the retail area. So rather than a camera being 10 meters away and trying to guess the facial thing, the, the, the Rowcam Roll technology can actually pan right in or focus right in on the face, zoom in, and they could see whether the, 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 the sides of the mouth actually move in the up or down position. So we know slightly if the mouth moves upwards, 
slightly, then we've got a positive and it moved down slightly, we've got a bit more of a negative. But then it also depends on people's actual facial uh, uh, features as well, because some people have naturally turned down mouths and some people have naturally turned up mouths. Mm. So in the facial recognition samples, all the different types of faces that they're putting into their system, they need to be looking at all sorts of different uh, features and emotions together. Now, the artificial intelligence is getting to a point now we can start picking those up, and that's why we at this point now of saying, okay, we need the right camera system that goes with the facial recognition technology so that that automatic zoom in on the person actually works. But again, the lighting conditions make a setting. So if we go back to the whole idea of, you know, what emotions we're trying to measure, the setting is also important as well. Is it even possible to do it in that setting? So coming back to your example of the concert with the low lighting or the spotlights and stuff like that. But we are at very, very early days. And as we know, I mean, facial recognition is in the early days for use in the events and retail industry. And I think you're absolutely right. It's it's something that is not very reliable now, but it will become more reliable in, in the future, I think. Yeah, because last year I was working on a project which was, uh, it was to do with helping people with mental health problems. And part of it was to use facial recognition from mobile devices was our kind of plan. But we found that facial recognition was you can only do sort of happy, sad. You can't read into a micro expression. Mm. But So we spoke to a couple of guys and they kind of said to us, you know, once micro expressions come in, you can read an expression in 0.2 seconds. Like the human race is going to have a major shift because no one can lie ever again. And no one can, you know, you can always kind of read into those things. So those micro expressions can be very telling, especially in developing or targeting people for certain needs and stuff. Have you spoken to many people about measuring experiences? Um, in terms of ROI or the actual experience itself, um, these are things that are quite difficult. So everybody's looking for that. Everybody discusses all the time. What's yeah. the return on investment? What's the return on experience? Or, you know, all those different types of return things. And they, they're they so difficult because you've got, if you think of a, a, a product activation with 300 people at the launch of that trainer, you're going to have eight different eight to ten different or even more different types of attendee personas or aggregator personas that you're looking at and each one of them will have a different reaction to the the program to the trainers to the color of the trainers to all sorts of things so being able to measure that in 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 an exact kind of way I mean, if somebody came up with the idea, great. But I think we are kind of getting there if we think about the emogram, which has been developed in this this five uh, negative, three positive kind of idea. And that's the technology that Zenus and Exposure Analytics are using. Then that's going towards um, that particular so you, idea. So can you just expand on that, the, um, the, the, the references you just mentioned? What, those two companies or the Emogram? The Emogram. Okay, so the Emogram um, was created by some US scientists because we've been talking about emotional um, states. And if you look at the Wheel of Emotion that we saw earlier in the presentation uh, by, by Plutchik, then we see there's quite a few emotions there. There's a, over 30 emotions in there. So what in terms of facial recognition, they've had to narrow that down to eight 
because then it's easier for the algorithm to read that. Mm. And at the same time, through the machine learning process, the more faces that are being uh, um, uh, examined or recognized or put into the system, and the wider the sample is, then the more... Uh, the more exact the actual recognition can be. So in terms of your idea about the mental health app and looking at people, it depends on the sample size. Mm. So and the, Because the, the machine learning needs a very, very large sample to differentiate um, the, the, the different types of emotions that are coming through that. So if you're, if you're dealing with somebody, NEC have great facial recognition technology. And because they use a lot of that at border posts, they've got a database of so many ones and zeros. They don't actually keep the photographs. They just keep the ones and zeros that actually map the facial features. They've got such a massive sample and um, they can be a lot more exact in terms of accuracy you know what that emotion may be they don't they're not measuring emotion they're just looking at the face to yeah. match something that they have already but the bigger the sample the more exact the emotion will be so we're just at the beginning of that game now and as we progress it's going to become a lot more exact so then you'll be able to set kpis by that because that's the next thing about the joining up of the kpis because the experience industry the events industry is currently lacking any kind of hard measurability and i think it's got a lot got away with a lot for a long time for what is a very expensive marketing spend and when when for example i've sat with marketing directors in other disciplines they're much more measurable so above the line social is much more measurable. I mean, anything digital is incredibly measurable. And the problem at the moment is that experiential is measured using the same metrics as things like social and above the line, which means it's measured on reach, which is, of course, not what an experience should be measured on because a social campaign for very little money can reach millions of people Whereas an experiential campaign, which can cost hundreds of thousands, millions, you only have a few hundred, if not thousands of people there. And so the bit that seems to be missing, and again, I'm wondering your perspective on this, is that we can start to measure emotions, but how are we connecting that to the value of that for a brand? Well, that's almost impossible, right? Because the thing is, let's go back to the trainer launch. We measure that everybody in that room and everybody's got joy written all over their faces yeah and they go back out to uh, their real lives now whether they buy that set of trainers today or tomorrow or whether they buy it in a year's time it's almost impossible for you to go well I was down at Shepherd's Bush Market measuring how many of those trainers were being shifted and I was in Sports Direct looking how many of those trainers were being shifted and unless somebody's got a voucher it's almost impossible yeah. for you to measure that. So there's got to be that link somehow to actually measure that behavior change. And I think that um, when we do do product activations and things like that, um, people are looking at how many people attended, what was the reach on social, and going back to the old yeah, metrics yeah. Yeah. that retail use over and over again. And they're not really they they're not really geared towards the live experience industry. And actually, we don't have those metrics or that way of measuring yet. I mean, we can look at a 
emotions. Now, once we've got to that point, then we can start to reimagine how we yeah. maybe measure kind those. Kind of a gut lighting. feel, isn't there, really, about experience? We kind of, we kind of know it works because it's a human experience and we're giving people a, an intimate experience with a product or a brand. So we have that. So it's very much kind of gut feel at the moment as as an industry, and it's it's that kind of point where there's there's much more scrutiny being put on marketing spends, and all other disciplines can go right. You gave us this much money, and we created this. We affected this kind of change, be it a kind of a change in purchase or a change in perception or something like that. We're kind of stuck in the experience world of going. A thousand people turned up. Assume they enjoyed themselves. Well, that's the thing is that we all know around this table that we can go to an event and the room fits a thousand people and there's only 200 people. There's all that negative space everywhere and just get that negative vibe. We can go to an event and it's absolutely buzzing. You don't even need to do a survey because you can just see everybody smiling. You know, everybody's had a great, fantastic time. time And we know that that creates a. a, a, But beyond that is where the problem comes. So, yes, you can use social to an extent, but. Unless we're going to actually um, blockchain people's identities and allow them in the future to be able to say, yes, you can have my data mm-hmm. and everything in my blockchain identity, every purchase I make, all those kinds of things are included in that identity that's blockchained and transparent. And then I can allow people to look into that identity. They can see when I bought the trainers. And what's so, the value exchange for the consumer? Very little, apart from you know, you give up data. What do you get back? Well, unless maybe, maybe the maybe somebody will come up with a clever idea of saying, if you want access to my blockchain, I want so many reward points per year from this particular bunch of people that have all got together and said, yeah, we will give you discounts at certain stages. So a bit like a Tesco card, but a blockchain yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. We talked earlier about the experience wave as well, which is very interesting about the fact that you move from a passive a passive to an active state um, and you fluctuate between the two over the timeline of an experience. Um, can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, you can just take your um, you can just take your daily routine. Um, you wake up in the morning and it's quite active. You brush your teeth, you have your breakfast, you change and then you get on the tube or the bus you sit there passively maybe reading something or just taking in the day day goes by you get off you walk to your office then you're actively engaged again so it's a very very similar process with an event except what we do is we conceive these spaces we conceive these programs and each person that's coming along to that will have a different view so let's take for example i lived in an area right under a volcano all my life yeah, and we weren't sure if the volcano was going to blow at any one time or another person lived in a place where there was never a volcano. It was a lovely beach area, you know, nice swimming and always a relaxed kind of person. You've got those two people at that same experience. They're going to experience in a very, very different way. So, for example, if you're using loud bangs and crashes in your sound thingy, the volcano living person might have some very adverse emotional reactions to those sounds within that setting, whereas the guy on the beach could... I'm really not fussed about that. It's just so it's a loud per, it's sound. Per, it's personal context. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Back, yeah, your personal context yeah. and your so, associate with it. Yeah, so our past lived experiences will actually um, have an impact on what our perceptions are of the next experience. So you've been to a pop concert... 
and you've lived those different experiences. And when you're going to the next pop concert, you anticipate what that's going to be like. Now, where we get the emotional reaction is like, how do I conceive that space as the pop concert designer to the people that are thinking this is what it's going to pan out to be? And what's the difference of that? Some might have a reaction of disgust. Some might have the reaction of joy. This is something I've never seen before. This is amazing. This just looks tired and dated. Why did I bother to buy a ticket? So it's about accessing cultural norms based on the yeah, audience. Yeah, but it's, it's not only the, it's an aggregation, yes. It's an aggregation because as a designer, you can't personalize your brand activation for every single person that's there. You can give them a personalized coffee cup when they arrive at the door, but that's as far as you can go. The program itself has got to please everybody. So we aggregate those kind of uh, con uh, spatial conceptions and we use different things like lights and sound. So for example, the countdown, you know, 10, 9, 8 that we have on New Year's Eve, that we know that everybody likes that kind of countdown idea on New Year's Eve and it gets everybody involved so in the, the countdown. this is the emotion of anticipation. Yeah. So not dissimilar to the way that you have a, a drop in music. Again, it's creating anticipation, a kind of a moment of silence before you kind of build back up again. So yeah. different yeah. ways of creating anticipation. Because yeah. we all know that all product launchers have a countdown. Well, there we go. Yeah. yeah. So it's that and and it's looking at those in the experience wave, it's looking at particular moments in time and the way you design your program. So it doesn't matter if it's a product launch or a conference. Um, it could be the engagement over a five minute period on an exhibition booth. Somebody walks in, what's that experience? What's the wave? You know, I'm showing you this on my phone and they stood there in a very, very passive kind of way. How do I get them to interact? How do I get them to participate in that, to create that sales lead or to get that sales interest going? So the program can be a two day long thing. It can be a two hour thing. It could be a two minute activation on an exhibition booth. But I think the key is, is to actually look at what are you designing there and what are the perceptions of the people that are going to come up, those personas, and how do I maybe change the message slightly yeah. for, to, to suit those different personas? But we have to aggregate as designers. We can't, we can't kind of do it for every single person. Where we can do that is on the internet. So if you look at um, if you look at a, a program like Wide Eyes, um, it uses the camera on your computer to actually look at your facial um, expressions, so it can tell if you're engaging or not. So with online learning in my world from academia, it's very very important to be able to see what people are doing while they're online learning. So are they losing concentration? So if you're using an AI learning platform, you can actually introduce new content or a video or change the way things are actually progressing so this is where we're moving to in education it has a lot it actually it has lots of connotations it may it, it, it this idea of the experience design and fluctuating and thinking about passive moments and active moments because again even when you know you're referring to talks or teaching if the entire thing is passive then you're going to lose attention but if the entire thing was interactive people are going to get a bit tired so you need that kind of moment of passively listening now let's have a moment of interaction and then go back to kind of passively and it's again you know if you kind of go to a, if you go to a concert you need those moments of quiet those moments to kind of step away but you also if it was all like that you'd be bored yeah. so you need those those moments of you kind of need both and it's actually quite i'm just sort of thinking this through it's quite interesting as you sort of design the the timeline of an experience around this experience wave it's very very interesting it's not it's not something we've really thought about it's probably something we 
intuitively do you do do it intuitively that's the point is that as a as as an experienced designer we do create these programs based on our world view so quite often um uh, um, that view would be much more of a Western kind of view. But, you know, when you go back to my example of the person living on the beach or the person living under the volcano, how do we take those very, very different worldviews into account, those different experiences into account, into that? And the reason the way I use kind of um, um, some of the theory from the Japanese spatial uh, dynamics um, is you do need those moments of calm. You know, so Mars about that space where nothing's happening. You walk into the meeting room. I'm the only one here, and in Japan, you don't you you, you don't think oh this room is empty. You just think this room is calm. Mm. And then as the people come in, then there's more connectedness, which we call bar. So the Ma and Bar idea is very very useful to us because it's just a different way of looking the at spaces. Ma and Bar. Yeah, have a look on Google. M A R M A M A like your mother. Okay. And bar like bar bar without the yeah. H, oh, right. so okay. just just interesting ways to look at spatial dynamics. But um, I think your your idea about um, these concert, if we extend that into the festival, what we do is we create our own experience wave because you have all these different elements. You have maybe five or six different stages with five or six different types of music, bars, shopping area campsite and all the rest of it and then we will co-create with the with the designers of that experience our own waves through that so i'm going to go to the hip-hop tent now then i'm going to have a break i'm going to go and lie out in the sunshine have a beer then i'm going to go off to the grime stage so you actually you decide what you're going to do so the elements are put in front of you, and then you tell your own story oh, right. yeah, yeah. of the way you put those elements together. Now, if you inject into that a brand, so let's say the EE tent where you recharge your phone, which is quite common at festivals, people will put that into their experience wave. Oh, I need to charge my phone, and that will be a passive moment. So it's a moment of relaxation, a moment of that. reflection, a moment of planning. Where will I go next? What will I do later? All those kinds of things. And of course, it applies to film as well, thinking it through, because again, if you if you have, for example, you take like a, a Michael Bay Transformers movie, which is all just like just nonsense action. You've just been hit in the face for two hours. It becomes, you need those moments of pause and calm. You need those kind of moments where you step away and you have a quiet character moment. And if you don't have that, the whole thing is just, you just come away exhausted and you don't take anything in. But inversely, if you have something which is kind of, completely passive and completely um quite nothing happening you have yeah you, you have the exact opposite so it actually does apply again thinking it through it does apply to quite a lot of um quite a lot of mediums i agree yeah i agree it's very interesting yeah so again so from, from you mentioned storytelling earlier as well and something that you've talked about is which is, again is very interesting is the idea of that we want we want our consumers to tell a brand story actually what they tell is their own story of their interaction with the brand that is key because the thing is is that with the amount of visual um, references to a brand that we see on social media especially uh, people are telling their own authentic stories all the time and that's usually from an experience point of view that's 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 typically that's they have gone into a retail environment or they've had a customer services 
experience and that's the story they're telling of their interaction with a product or service um whereas that's what we want to do then is we we put on we put on experiential activations where they tell a different story of their interaction with a brand a positive interaction with a brand but they're still telling their story of their interaction they're not going off and saying nike was founded in 18 they're not they're not telling that story are they? they're telling the story of the interaction that they had so let, let, let's just take an example so rihanna gets paid a million pounds to tell her story about a particular brand yeah hmm. now we all know that's totally stage authenticity or not authentic at all hmm. so the the awareness is there about their their brand but if you look at the behavior change cycle that we were looking at before that's only the contemplation bit the actual action bit is when either of you put your story of that brand on Instagram or TikTok or whatever the case may be, and then I, as a peer or family or friend, see it, then I buy into the story because then I know it's authentic. Mm. So it's that authenticity that is really, really part of that brand storytelling. And you can't, as a brand you're as a brand manager you want to control the messaging that's going out about your brand well i'm afraid those days of that ship sailed yeah, you, have to you know control yeah. yeah you can't have control anymore because there's so many channels these days with people telling their own stories everybody's a journalist now so how are you going to stop them from being journalists how are you going to stop every single person that buys a pair of trainers from telling their story about those pair of trainers you can't do it it's a very interesting story in, in kind of picking up because one of the things I'm kind of picking up through this is that when you talk about the festival story, um, my journey emotionally when I've gone to festivals and things, stuff like that happens, way, I start way before there. And if there's a way in which you can interact those emotions, uh, you know, from almost considering seeing an advertisement for the festival is where my journey, emotional journey starts, right? And being able to be picked up throughout that would be really interesting as well. But your emotional story starts based on your perceptions of previous experiences of festivals or the people that you were with at those festivals. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that all feeds back into how, what was my perception going to be of this festival? And you start asking those questions, who's going to be there, yeah. what you're wearing, you know, when are you getting there, this hoping to see this, that or the other. So it's all based on that past experience. And that past experience is, is a huge kind of stamp on the way you're going to feel for that new experience so when you go to secret cinema for example you might have been to a secret cinema before and you have an idea of you know the way the setting's going to be designed and how interactive the whole experience is going to be but if you've never been to secret cinema you're just really working off word of mouth and then you have this kind of very different idea uh, to maybe your idea because you've been there a couple of times mm. so it's very interesting how that plays and how that plays out in different emotional states yeah because if you've never been the emotion is surprise but if you've been or your friends have been the the, the emotion is anticipation exactly but one thing that, that coming coming back to you know the idea of festival toilets for example and, and something that secret cinema does very well is it's it's a fully integrated immersive every part of it from the ticketing is part of the experience and it's easy to forget and I don't know if you've heard the model of the fact that the the person who cleans the restaurant is as important as the Michelin star chef who makes the food because the context within which you consume a product is as important as the product itself. And if you have a dirty restaurant, you know, if there's a rat, then it doesn't matter how good the food is. 
and it, it makes me think about is that is that always considered you know sort of the festival they just kind of dump the toilets down because it's a utility but that has a negative impact on your experience of that particular festival well it does because um you know if there was a sign as i said earlier if there was a sign near the toilet said these toilets cleaned every 15 minutes you probably wouldn't imagine that you were going to have a bad experience at those festival toilets would you mm. Well, there's, there's an yeah, aspect of signalling as that, there as know. well, isn't it? Just a simple sign can is, is a yeah. kind of a, an interesting behavioural thing because it's signalling that we actually care about these toilets. Absolutely. Whether they are cleaned every 15 yeah. minutes or not. Or well, our toilets are sponsored by Palmolive, you know, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, that is actually kind of considered as part of it. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is kind of very interesting and it's not always sort of thought about and you can almost start to kind of map that out as part of an experience journey as well because you have to recognise that the visiting of the toilets and the ticketing system as well, if the ticketing system is broken, if you if you get to the door and there's huge queues, then no matter how good your stage show is, that's already, that's a negative experience. Well, exactly. And the thing is people, always, people are always quick to mention the negatives before they are to mention the positives. Do they, am I right in thinking that you remember the negatives more than the positives? Yeah. And this also brings us back to um, the way we survey people as well is, you know, quite often we'll serve, survey people um, um, at the end of an experience through an email, like a day or two later. Yep. Um, and the thing, there, there's a difference between what we call effective and reflective um, feedback. So effective is the emotional feedback at particular points in time. And somebody would say, well, how are you enjoying this concert? And you've just come off the main stage and go, wow, that was amazing. Yeah. Or you've left home, you've been in the office for two days, you get this email and all you remember is the dirty toilets. And then that's the reflective feedback that you're giving. Mm. So quite often I say to people, like, if you're going to want to do some kind of survey, maybe you, instead of just doing one reflective survey at the end, do an effective survey at the end of an interesting keynote or do a survey at lunchtime or get people to put their, um, their, their uh, event registration or their name badges in an emoji bin on the way out so that they haven't oh, yeah. they, they haven't got that time to reflect on the negatives but they still remember the positives within the moment i mean i suppose if you really wanted accurately you'd want them to be wearing one of those those now consumer level eeg headsets throughout the entire experience so you can get a kind of a timeline of of positive and negative well there's this um northern ireland based company called sensum and they do they did the feel wimbledon activation with land rover about two three years ago mm. So what they did is they had people in the main stadium, centre court, and they were wearing, you know, those things that you wear at hospitals, you know, for your pulse. So they had that. And then they also had a sweat one as well. Right. Because the, the certain emotions will cause you to sweat more. Yeah. And then they used those two biometric measurements. And then they also looked at the sentiment on posts on Twitter. And they used an algorithm to aggregate all that information to look at the wave. And this was done in real time to look at the wave while the match was actually going on. So it was more an idea about feeling Wimbledon about the different emotional states using biometric data and using the social but data. Again, what's your academic perspective on that? Because I've done biometrics and they make, they make for an interesting marketing campaign. But um, sweat and pulse 
again, people's pulses don't really change. Your heart doesn't sort of leap around, and it, it, it's a very, it's very rough science. It is. It makes for a good marketing I campaign. I agree. It does, and and it sounds good. But if you if it depends how many data points you've got. So in what you've just described now is one data point is the biometric data point. Yeah. But here we're looking at the second data point, which is the social media feeds right. and the and the um, and sentiment analysis within that. So now if we triangulate that data, then we'll get a much better sample in terms of measurement. So the more data points you have and the more that you can triangulate, the more robust the, um, the sample is. Cross-reference with facial and these starts to kind of get more kind of accurate. Exactly. Of harder science. But then obviously that goes, the costs go up and then yep. that's a new budgetary line that you need Which to include. Which is why we need to wait for the technology to get cheaper <laughs> and then we'll get better. Um, yeah. and, with, and with that, we actually, we, we, we need to let you go, unfortunately, even though this is actually really great talking actually i want to keep going on this but we do need to wrap it up we do okay james sure it's lovely to have you thank you very much for inviting me yeah, yeah thank you so much thanks once again for listening to the genuine x podcast if you have any questions please do get in touch with us at genuine x podcast at jackmalton.co.uk and don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes till next time thanks very much